Good afternoon and welcome to the Jason Rant Show on AM 770 KTTH. We are streaming on all those smart speakers like Amazon Echo and Google Home. He brought Molotov cocktails to a protest back in 2020. He's now being punished. But is it enough? That is what's trending. What's trending? Legal. You know, I remember this story like it was yesterday because, well, it almost was yesterday. It, well, it was 2020, but I was covering this at the time. And this was one series of, of violent protest, rally, riot, however we want to describe each and every one of them after another, after another, after another. And at one point back in September of 2020, you had a mob descend upon the Seattle Police Officers Guild office space, their building in Soto, and the intent was to burn it down. And I remember as folks were marching down, everyone was like, oh, this is how you do a peaceful protest and none of the cops should be there. It it was broken up rather quickly because it was very clearly not peaceful and it was never intended to be peaceful. Now, were some of the folks there intending to be nonviolent? Sure, sure. But when you're marching especially at the time towards Spog offices, you knew something was going to go down. And so what ended up happening was as the police were breaking everything up, as bike cops came out, and I I still have video of it up on my Twitter feed, someone who was there by the name of Justin Christopher Moore, he was, I believe was 32 at the time, he dropped a box that he had brought with him. The box right next to the Spog building, had a whole bunch of Molotov cocktails in it. Twelve. Twelve Molotov cocktails. Now, again, why would you bring a Molotov cocktail to a rally or a peaceful protest? Because you're not intending on it being peaceful or being a rally. This was intended to burn the place down. And this was, I believe at the time, a few weeks after... It had previously been hit with Molotov cocktails. I might have the dates wrong, but it was around that time, and that person was never charged. So in this case, officers were able to use video, body cam footage from the day, as well as they just say information from electronic devices to figure out that it was, in fact, Justin Moore who had it. Back in June of 2021, they had a search warrant on this guy's home. And guess what they found? The clothes that he was wearing on the day he carried the Molotov cocktails. Chose not to get rid of it. Now, investigators say they also recovered items consistent with manufacturing explosive devices, along with a notebook where Moore wrote about making the cocktails and the ingredients that he would need. Huh. Now, this ended up getting investigated not just by SPD, but I know ATF was involved, the FBI is involved or was involved. So he ends up getting charged, and now he's been sentenced. Now, the sentence, and I don't know whether or not I think this is too light of a sentence or the right sentence, but it is 40 months in jail, or prison, excuse me. So about, you know, a little over three and a quarter, three and a third months, or years, excuse me, 3.3-ish years. Now, I don't know how I feel about that. If he were to actually serve all three years, then I probably, 
probably would say that's appropriate because he didn't actually use the Molotov cocktails. But then I find myself almost talking myself out of that position in that this is a dude who clearly wanted to cause harm, clearly wanted to not just burn down the building, but presumably kill anybody inside. This is not someone who is safe. He's 35 years old right now. Do we really want him out in three years? And will he even do the three years or consistent with the Democrat move to depopulate prisons, especially here in Washington state, will he end up just being released? Will he end up spending maybe a year in jail, if that, and then put on some sort of community program or community release? Hey, you're going to have to attend some meetings. You'll have to you know, do 20 hours of community service. Maybe he can clean up some of the graffiti around Spog. I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm still leaning in the direction of if he spends the three and a half years or almost three and a half years in prison, I feel like that's a positive. If not, then I'm out. Sorry. No good. This is someone who is clearly dangerous, and he needs to serve the full sentence because he needs to learn a lesson. And others need to learn lessons because every single time someone gets out of jail early, they're just sending the message that the, the who, whomever made the decision, the state would be sending the message, yeah, we don't really take this kind of crime seriously. Don't worry. You only spend a you know a year or so in jail. Don't you're you're 27, you're 33. You've got plenty of life to live. Stick around and don't worry. You'll be out in no time, so you can continue to try to murder people by throwing Molotov cocktails at buildings that might have folks inside. You can do that again in the. I, I'm just I'm kind of on the fence. I'd like to hear from you guys. Send me a text. One eight hundred four six five eight seven seventy. That's one eight hundred four six five eight seven seventy. And I'll go ahead and uh, read your your messages, your positions, and I will reflect on my own. Let's find out what else is trending. What's trending? National. In what was an inevitability, the governor of New Mexico's tyranny, a very clearly unconstitutional order banning the carrying of guns was temporarily blocked by a judge. I am Jason Rance. Hello. And I am the author of a book that comes out in a little over a week. It's called What's Killing America, which I hope you will purchase. And what's killing America is pretty clear. It's the radical left. And New Mexico Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham firmly established herself in that group of radicals because she decided to use a public health order in order to strip citizens of their Second Amendment rights. And I know Dan Bongino has been talking a lot about this, as he should. Everyone has been talking a lot about this. For those of us who actually care about our Second Amendment rights, we saw this issue as concerning. And it was concerning because Despite what we all knew to be the case, which was this was very clearly unconstitutional. You can watch you know, a single episode of The Practice or Boston Legal or Ally McBeal, and you would know that this was unconstitutional. We live in a time in which judges have shown to be incredibly partisan. Choosing politics, ideology over the law. We've seen it over and over and over again. And then we've seen it over and over and over again some more. 
And so when this originally got in front of a judge, thanks to groups that chose to sue, including a group out of Colorado, you never quite know where things are going to go. We always hope because we want to have trust in the system. We always hope that the right thing is going to happen. We always hope that a judge is going to rule on the law. But I'm based in Seattle. I'm based in the Pacific Northwest where we see judges all the time say, meh, legal schmeagle. I'm all about the ideology. And unfortunately, we are worse off because of that. We are losing rights. We are put in danger. The reason why we have a public safety crisis the way that we do right now is very clearly due to judges. In addition to the Democrat politicians, the radicals at least, who pass laws that are unconstitutional or who enact programs and strategies and initiatives that are unconstitutional, we got judges who oftentimes don't get a lot of attention despite the fact that they are ruling against the interests of community, of safety, of our rights. And there was always that part of me, whenever looking at any of these stories, recognizing the fact that we're one bad judgment away, one partisan judge away from losing some rights, be it temporarily or not. And in this case, we had a U.S. district judge. His name is David Urias, and he's a Joe Biden appointee. But this was a bill, or or, or, excuse me, an executive order, a public health emergency, stripping citizens of their Second Amendment rights that was so egregious that a Biden-appointed judge said, yeah, no, we're not doing this. I mean, it was so egregious that you had Ted Lieu, the troll congressman from Southern California, coming out and saying exactly the same thing. Moments after this public health order was implemented. And we get one of the plaintiffs pursuing this, Dudley Brown. He's the president of a Colorado gun group. And he's quoted in Reuters as saying, Governor Grisham's tyranny is temporarily in check today. And of course, that's correct. She doesn't see it that way. You'll recall that she had been going on TV and sending out insufferable tweet after insufferable tweet, talking about how she was on firm constitutional ground, which is kind of ironic because she was making that argument, and presumably this was run up some flagpole with their lawyers, and their lawyers said, knowing that this was unconstitutional, "Eh, do it anyway. Something tells me Grisham isn't going to get indicted. We only do that with Donald Trump, who in good faith was challenging what he believed to be an election that was not run the way it was supposed to. But because he was given advice of counsel that the radical left didn't like, they decided to indict. You will see no such indictment. You will see no such legal trouble for Michelle Lujan Grisham, who believes she is a hero. She put out a tweet yesterday after this announcement came in. It was later in the afternoon, early evening, depending on where you were. And she said, I refuse to be resigned to the status quo, and I will never stop fighting to prevent other families from enduring these tragedies. 
She said that we have a significant problem of gun violence in this state, uh, no doubt due to soft on crime policies passed by radical Democrats. But she says we got a problem of gun violence in this state. And as is oftentimes the response from folks on the left is we're not going to pay attention to the who behind pulling the trigger. We're just going to pay attention to the gun, the weapon. We don't do it with knives. We don't do it when cars are used illegally. We don't use it. We don't go after hammers when they're used illegally. We go after the gun, not the person. And she wants you to think she's a hero. And I have no doubt that she'll be portrayed as one in left-wing media. They'll say, you know what? She tried to do something. And it's better than those Republicans, those mega Republicans who don't do anything. While innocent 11-year-old children are murdered outside of baseball stadiums like that poor child in New Mexico. And while they pursue her as a hero, as they characterize her that way, and as she characterizes herself that way, keep something in mind. She decided to exploit the death of an 11-year-old child the impetus, she said, for this, this move. She exploited that young child's death to do something she always wanted to do and was just waiting for the right moment to strike. She was waiting for the right moment to strike, and it was when that young child was murdered in a targeted killing of whomever, it, it appears, of whomever was in the car at the time. This child was there. She exploited that pain, that suffering, that tragedy to go after guns to fulfill an ideological promise, a commitment to go after guns however she saw fit, however she could get away with it. And while the block is temporary, we all expect it's going to stand, understand that this is not the actions of heroes. It's the actions of cowards, of creeps. Because I would look at something like this and say, okay, why do we have a rise in gun violence? And we can look across the country. A lot of this is happening in Democrat-run cities, the surge. The unfortunate reality and part of the reason why I wrote my book, What's Killing America, which you should pre-order right now on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or Walmart, The reason I wrote that is because it's spreading. When I used to do a show at night here in Seattle, I would get messages from folks texting into the show, essentially saying, I am so sick of what's going on in Seattle because of the rise of crime, the rise of homelessness, drug use, etc., I'm moving to the outskirts. I'm moving into a different county. I'm going to the east side of the state. But now I get messages from the same folks saying, oh, no, the problems of Seattle have spread. They're now meeting me in Renton or Vancouver or Spokane or Bellingham There's no escaping. This isn't Vegas. Bad policies of the left, they don't stay in the city that they come from because it's being inspired by ideology. That is the absolute truth.
It gets inspired by ideology, and when ideologues have these successes, they end up inspiring other ideologues and other communities to do exactly the same thing, and sometimes it happens at the state level. How many laws in this country have been passed in the, 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 under the guise of criminal justice reform? We're trying to block systemic racism. They tell us that over and over and over again. And then before you know it, you are in a state like Illinois, New York, where you get rid of cash bail. Ensuring that criminals end up being released from jail only to then reoffend. Now, no one on the radical left will look at that situation, look at those laws, look at the tightening of gun control and still yet a surge of gun violence. And no one stops on the radical left to sit back and say, you know what, maybe we're part of the problem. Maybe it's our policies that are causing this. No, because on the one hand, they've got ideological blinders on where they truly don't see the consequences of their actions or they're willing to put up with some short-term pain because they think it's going to lead to some long-term gain. Some just like chaos, right? We've got lawmakers who just like the chaos, everyone from like the AOC, Ilhan Omars of the world, the, the squad basically. And on a local level, regardless of where it is you're living, I'm sure you have versions of that. They just like the chaos. But putting myself in their shoes for a moment, I can imagine that they go down one of those two paths I just mentioned, either ideological blinders or they are accepting short-term pain. And understanding where the radical left comes from is really important in defeating them. It's really important in defeating them because you can understand where they're coming from and then devise strategies to defeat them. And right now, I think it's very clear, particularly around gun control or gun rights, however you want to frame it, it's very clear what their MO is. They're going to try to go after guns that you and I own at the expense of going after the criminals who are using those guns, not the way that they are intended to be used. They're not intended to be used in crimes. They're intended to be used for self-defense, and ironically, in New Mexico— You had a whole bunch of people who, because of the criminal gun violence, wanted to arm themselves so that they can be protected. And they weren't allowed to do that. Or at least that was the intent. The intent here with the governor was to take away guns from the people who were using it to protect themselves and their families, from the people who are going to shoot and kill them thanks to radical laws that go easy on criminals. And isn't that the same thing that ha- – isn't that the same theme either city to city, county to county, state to state, regardless of where you are? If you are in an area that has radical Democrats in control, and we're talking about a good chunk of this country, California from a state level, Oregon, Washington, the entire West Coast, much of the East Coast – When you look into Illinois, when you look into New Mexico, what do you have? You have folks who have passed laws that go easy on the criminals, but then they come after you and I. As if the Glock that I own that is stored safely in a safe in my closet that you can only access with my fingerprint 
that is somehow a threat. That's the threat. Not the gangbanger that they say, due to systemic racism and institutionalized racism, shouldn't be put in jail because it's not really their fault that they engaged in a drive-by shooting. Oh, wow. I wonder why we have the crime crisis that we have. The Jason Ranch Show. Here to react, Seattle Talk Radio host Jason Ranch. And the rise of soft on crime laws and policies have made it worse. Our man in the Pacific Northwest, Jason Rance, is on that. And you keep on bringing her these extraordinary stories from Seattle. It's amazing. Long form. Garth Stein is best known for art of racing in the rain. He's an old-time friend of the Jason Rance Show, and he is back because he's got a new graphic novel series coming out. Book two is out on the 29th. Uh, The Cloven is the name of the series. It takes place in the Pacific Northwest. It it visits everything from a homeless encampment to a secret sanctuary in the woods, and it stars a half-man, half-goat. Garth Stein, welcome back to the show. It's been a very long time. Yeah, thanks for having me back, Jason. And I should note, it's actually August 29th when it came out, so it's actually out right now. So take us through, obviously going from uh, you know, a more traditional novel to a graphic novel, I, I imagine there's a bit of a learning curve. Uh, well, there's definitely a learning curve, yeah, on um, um, a lot of different levels. The business side of it is one, but also the creation side of it was quite quite interesting to work with a collaborator instead of, you know, with my, my usual, you know, totalitarian self, I'm in charge of everything. Now I'm, I'm dealing with people. So that's been a lot of fun. But what I found was that the, um, the story needed to be told with images. Mm -hmm. I tried to write it with just words and it, and it didn't work. So Did, did you write an outline? Did you write the actual story and then comes the art or did, did it have to happen in collaboration? Well, yeah, so I write, the way we work is I write a script, like a movie, very much like a movie script, but Mm -hmm. I overwrite it a lot so that Matthew Southworth, my brilliant collaborator and illustrator, so he can um, see what's in my head kind of, you know, and then he takes it and and, uh, blocks it out. He essentially does, it's like doing a stage play. He blocks it out and he says, what about this? And I, we go back and forth on it, you know, because there's a lot of stuff to decide how long a beat should take, a, yeah. a dramatic beat. If it's two panels, is it two pages, is it 20 pages? And so we go back and forth on that. And then he goes into his cave and he draws a bunch of stuff and he brings out like tablets and I like look at them and we go back and forth. So it's very collaborative and, um, and we discover like new things and he has great ideas that he brings into it that uh, can make the story uh, enhanced. And then I, I kind of rewrite then the whole deal based on all of his pictures. And then we sort it out from there. Take us through the, the basic storyline. Yeah, well, the Cloven is about um, uh, goat people. <laughs> it's about <laughs> specifically one, one in particular, a, a young man named uh, Tuck is his nickname. And um, Tuck was created on the laboratory um, that was developed by a quirky billionaire genius named Barry Goff. And he developed this laboratory on Vashon Island because, as we all know, anything the weird that happens in Seattle happens on Vashon Island. Sure. And they're, they're trying to end world hunger is what they say. How are they going to do it? Well, they're going to they're going to create a hybrid person that has the digestive tract of a goat or of a ruminant. So that we can increase the food supply, they can eat blackberry bushes. We don't have to worry about all that food stuff. 
and that's going to solve world hunger. And they work on it in this laboratory, and they get it. They get it. It works, but they can't get the hoofs out of the equation. So they don't know what to do. They have to mothball the project, and they're going to euthanize all these little children mutants. And a scientist with a heart of gold says, you can't do that. He kidnaps the kids and takes them up into the mountains and lets them go and says, this is as far as I can help you. You've got to figure it out on your, on your own. And some of these kids go off and form bands of herds of goat people in the woods. And some of them come back to the city and they hide um, where nobody cares to look, which is among the homeless population in the jungle underneath the freeway. Now, is this the old jungle that we are aware of or is this a new jungle encampment? Well, I think that it's 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 the jungle. I don't think the jungle has different forms, but I think it's always still there, you know. Um, so yeah, it's, it's based on the idea of when the, when they, when the, the jungle was at its highest, you know, the encampment was what several thousand people there. And, um, I know efforts have been made, but it's still there. So yeah, it's in that part of it, the, the part of it where we as civilians don't really want to know what's going on there. Mm-hmm. Can somebody, can someone else deal with that for us is kind of what we say. And every now and then it pops up. We have to deal with it because there's an all-star game or a Beyonce concert, or maybe there's a fire suddenly broken out right next mm-hmm. to the off-ramp or something. Then, then we have to deal with it, but we only deal with it when we're in the extreme. We're not dealing with it when we don't see it. So that's kind of the idea. That was sort of the idea of trying to convey this message to the to my readers yeah. using pictures to do it. So a spoonful of sugar, in a sense, right, to deliver the message mm-hmm. that we need to address this issue when it's not on fire let's deal with it when it's not on fire too what was that was that the the impetus for this particular story was that just sort of a concept or at least an idea that you wanted to express and then the the actual storyline came or was that discovered as you were plotting through what you wanted this book to be about well i think i was kind of started with kind of the bigger ideas which is you know this technology that we have that's being you, you know there was that whole meeting just yesterday on the um you know about ai yep. where they brought all the, the super brains into the the capital and we don't know what went on there because i don't think so at least i believe it was behind closed was, doors yeah. ironic yeah. Let's, hey let's let's have a meeting about transparency and let's not make it transparent that's really funny <laughs> anyway <laughs> no i mean, i think that's a anyway, great point <laughs> I mean, all this stuff is going on, and we are – it's too much. I mean, I think that there's – in a way, it's, the world has gone completely crazy, and they're bombarding us with so much information that we can't deal with it. Mm-hmm. So we have to go with the simplest answer and make it clear and say, you know, this, that, the other thing. And that way, we can just put it in someone else's hands and let someone else deal with it. But as we all know, we have to take responsibility for ourselves and for where we are yeah. in this world. And for what the world is that we're living in. So how, how important that, was that, it? That started me on the book. Oh, yeah. No. And you know what I always like about talking with you? There's always something else behind stories. It's not just as straightforward as people might think, even though it might appear on the surface to be just uh, here's just a, yeah. a, a weird goat human hybrid. And but no, there's there's more to just like the the weirdness and the quirkiness uh, of the character and i you know i I think also it seems like as it is often the case with you the the pacific northwest this was important this was an important part of the story yes for sure for sure the the scenes are all the the artwork is fabulous by the way and the and the scenes uh there's all sorts of stuff in seattle 
and in the Northwest area that are sort of um, touchstones that you would totally recognize. Um, we, we, we did take a little excursion up into the North Cascades in book two, where there's a secret enclave of billionaire geniuses uh, deciding the fate of our world. And that, 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 that area that we, that fictional thing that we created called Halcyon Forest is based on, of course, Bohemian Grove down in California, which I don't know some people know about, some people don't, mm -hmm. but as um, it's well-documented, let's put it that way. You, the, I, I believe book one came out two and a half, three-ish years ago. I'm curious, yeah. you know, because actually you bring up AI and there's one particular issue with AI having to do with just art and, and taking over some of these positions that screenwriters are, are concerned with and whatnot. I mean, when you look at something like this and the whole process behind it, how important is it to go away from AI-generated artwork that could probably put your book together in a, an hour versus sitting down and actually working side-by-side side with an actual cartoonist like you did with Matthew? Yeah, I think that, you know, AI ultimately is going to have its limitations on the fact that it, it just it just can't do what a human brain can do, which is like, I, I, so I have a story idea in my head. I've got 58 years of, of a very specific experience that I can draw upon, including the thing that happened to me when I was four and a half years old. And I can just pick it out of will whenever I want to mm -hmm. without arbitrary in a way, like, in other words, let the connections in my brain, in my subconscious, let them be the guide of that. And since artificial intelligence doesn't have a subconscious, at least that we know of, it, it can't go to that place. It, it can create a really good screenplay, but it, it will never, I don't believe, create a, a truly excellent novel because it doesn't have that subconscious strata that it can dip into, it can pull from. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. And and that it doesn't have a soul, <laughs> right? At the end of the day, it's exactly. just, it's, it doesn't exactly. have a soul. It's not going to be able to convey that kind of emotional reaction that that someone who's an actual creator would be able to to put into their work. And, and frankly, I don't think that they can even do uh, at least AI. I don't think yet is capable of doing a truly decent script of of any kind. Can it get edited with a human after? Yeah, sure. But I don't think we're, we're there yet. And hopefully, we stay away from that because I would. Uh, I much prefer the work of individuals so that people like you and I uh, don't go out of business and uh, end up in the jungle living next to a half-human, half-goat hybrid. <laughs> the Cloven is the name of the series. Book one and book two are now out. Gorgeous uh, illustrations, great story. Garth Stein, thank you so much for stopping by. Hey, thanks a lot, Jason. Take Absolutely. Care. And again, you can check out The Cloven, purchase it on Amazon or wherever it is you purchase your graphic novels and novels. You're listening to The Jason Rancho. When we come back, we'll deliver you a quick hit. The Jason Ranch Show. Let's bring in our man in the Pacific Northwest, KTTH, Seattle talk radio host Jason Rance. Great to have you with us to tell people a little bit more about this. Jason Rance is in focus now. Jason Rance, thank you for your reporting on that. The Quick Hit. I mean, this will be quick, even though I do want to savor every moment of the news. Hunter Biden is most definitely not having a great day. He has now been indicted an indictment tie, uh, tied to the firearms charges that is now here. We can tell you it's coming in slowly, but he has been indicted on three criminal counts 
related to the possession of a firearm. The charges have been filed in U.S. District Court in Delaware. And this, of course, is coming after the collapse of his previous sweetheart deal, a sweetheart deal that everyone pretended was not a sweetheart deal. But, of course, we all knew that's exactly what it was, but it wasn't sweetheart enough, and it ended up collapsing. Thank God we had a judge who was looking at this and said, mm, this doesn't seem kosher. Why, why are we doing it this way? I've never seen it like this before. And then, of course, it ended up unraveling. Now, we can tell you that two of the counts are tied to him filing this form claiming that he wasn't using any drugs at the time that he purchased his revolver. This was back in October 2018. And, of course, his book was the, the is going to be probably the only evidence that they need in order to prove that charge. He very clearly was using drugs at the time according to his own commentary. Now, the third count was that he possessed the firearm while he was using a illicit substance, a narcotic. Now, they're calling this over at NBC News. I like to go sometimes to, and I call NBC News Teen Vogue because that's really what they've become. I like to see how they cover these kinds of issues, and they call it a historic indictment against the son of a sitting president. Now, it, of course, is being overseen by special counsel David Weiss. And as I think most folks on the right are concerned, this is a guy who maybe shouldn't necessarily be trusted. That we saw what happened earlier. We saw the sweetheart deal. We said, okay, this guy is truly showing his cards. This is not someone who can necessarily be trusted. And then, of course, we have this happening. And one could sit back and say, okay, is this him suddenly finding his his guts, his, his principles and values to go after the son of the president and maybe soon the president himself? Or is this a guy who was put in a place because of whistleblower testimony, because of newly found courage of some media members outside of conservative media questioning whether or not this guy is doing the right thing? I, I don't know. I don't know. Obviously, I think these charges, this indictment is a positive step in the direction of ensuring that people are being treated fairly and are not being given special treatment because they happen to be the drugged up son uh, and, and artist of, of great acclaim of the president. Because if you were in the position that he was in on any of the accounts, you would not get a sweetheart deal. You clearly wouldn't. If you were someone who tried to write off for tax purposes, allegedly, your affairs with prostitutes, you would get charged. I mean, that happened to me like four times. I learned my... I'm kidding. But of course, we would all be charged. And somehow he was able to get away with it. But perhaps this is the start of something new. I always like to look at these stories and be fair, as fair as I can be, and say, let's give the guy the benefit of the doubt, David Weiss. I will be, I kind of, I still subscribe to the whole general concept of trust, but verify. You know what? I trust he's now doing the right thing. He's going to go in the right, um, down the right path. Eh, 
but I'll stick around and I will just verify it. We'll wait to see what happens next. We'll wait to see the next shoe that drops. And I'm looking at some of the court documents now. It's basically everything that I said, but more confusing because it's surrounded by, by legal jargon and lots of different form numbers and whatnot. So, again, this is good news. As it develops, we will continue to give you updates. I'd love to hear the president respond to this because previously and, – and frankly, all Democrat, every single Democrat, every single Democrat who is in office right now should be asked a very simple question. Do you think – that Hunter Biden should have been charged? And do you think he should be convicted? You have said over and over and over again, you are all about making sure we keep guns out of the hands of the wrong people. Although really what you mean is you don't want guns in anyone's hands. Yeah, we got it. But let's go with your silly talking point. Do you think, based on everything that we know, he should be convicted? Now, of course, they're going to say, well, you know, he deserve- He is innocent until proven guilty. He's not Donald Trump. He is innocent until proven guilty, and he deserves his day in court. And ultimately, we'll let the criminal justice system decide. I have nothing but faith in the criminal justice system, except, of course, when the Supreme Court of the United States says something we don't like. But other than that, we're all in. And I trust David Weiss, so long as he continues to do at least what the president wants him to do, at least as it refers to this presidency. So we'll be develop- We'll be following any of those developments. And you know what? Just speaking of the Hunter Biden probe, I maybe I missed this. I did not see a ton of coverage of something that happened yesterday. I saw some coverage. Politico covered a report of a FBI official coming forward and saying Hunter Biden's prosecutor, uh, the David Weiss guy we're just talking about, did in fact face pushback from prosecutors who are friendly to the president. I saw political cover it. I, I'm pretty sure I saw it on FoxNews.com. I don't think I've seen a lot of coverage outside of that. So I thought I would bring it to you now at this point because we're kind of already in it. There was an FBI agent, according to Politico, that was involved in the Hunter Biden probe and said that David Weiss tried to get a fellow U.S. attorney to move forward with not just help but an indictment. This is someone who, an FBI agent, it looks like, who spoke voluntary. She did a voluntary interview with the House Judiciary Committee. And according to the transcript, she indicated that the U.S. attorney in California, who's appointed by President Biden, declined to partner with Weiss in pursuing tax charges against the president's son. She said, quote, I remember learning at some point in the investigation that Mr. Weiss would have to go through his other processes because the U.S. Attorney's Office had, I guess in that sense, using that terminology, wasn't going to partner. Now, the agent's testimony was made as part of this voluntary interview where she was then asked if she recalled learning that the U.S. Attorney for the Central District of California, his name is Martin Estrada, specifically decided not to bring tax charges against Hunter Biden. And the agent replied, quote, I understand that, yes, that a decision has been made that the Central District of California wasn't going to, I guess. My understanding is that they weren't going to bring the case on their own. Now, she did say that the lack of cooperation would not have ultimately prevented Weiss from bringing tax charges on his own against Hunter Biden. And that's a key part of all of this. Because it doesn't indicate 
that David Weiss was doing the right thing, but then ultimately was forced to do the wrong thing. He still ultimately did the wrong thing in not bringing forward the charges that he should have. This might have been an indication, at least the way I'm reading it, is that David Weiss, the special prosecutor from Delaware, wanted to get someone else's backing. Because let's all be honest, it is difficult going up against the son of the sitting president, regardless of who the sitting president is. It doesn't matter that Joe Biden goes to bed at 3 p.m., has dinner at 1230 and can't walk up a flight of stairs without falling down four times. It's still intimidating going up against the office. And when you've got someone who's as vindictive as Joe Biden appears to be, and certainly against a party that is very clearly vindictive, maybe you want a little bit of backing. You want a little bit of support. And perhaps that's why he went to Martin Estrada, not just because, yeah, hey, you also see what's going on and you could be charging too, but maybe it was, let's do this together. Let's Thelma and Louise it because, you know, they could come after us and our jobs. And Estrada was all like, I like my job. You see the benefits I get? Yeah, no, I'm not joining you. I'm team Biden. And then he pumps his chest a few times. Now, she did go on to say this agent, he would still have the authority to do so, the charges. It's just that now he would do it differently. Now, this testimony is consistent, political reports, in part with an IRS whistleblower's description of the probe and comes at a critical juncture in the investigations into the Biden family. Republicans have pointed to that whistleblower description when making the case for opening an impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. Now, to be clear, this does not directly implicate the president in anything, right? In fairness, it could just be an unprincipled U.S. attorney who doesn't want to tick the president off, but we should be fair about this. But we can also know that given this dossier we talked about at the beginning of the hour that the White House put out, demanding that the media cover for them, call Republicans out as liars, they're getting desperate. That seems to me, at least, that seems to be a move that is desperate. The last-ditch effort. We really need your help. There actually maybe is something there there. Could you step up and help us? And they're doing a really, really poor job, I think, of defending the president. 1-800-465-8770 if you want to send me a text. You're listening to The Jason Ranch Show.